I'm Rob Freeman, president of Kane Brothers. During this unprecedented and disorienting time, the team at Kane Brothers is conducting weekly interviews with leaders from throughout the healthcare industry for this special edition Industry Insights series. Our goal is to provide you and your organization with a wide array of views on the multifaceted dimensions, challenges, and responses to COVID-19. Transcripts are available on the Kane Brothers website. Please share your feedback with me or any of your Kane Brothers contacts, and thanks for listening. This is John Soden, Managing Director at Kane Brothers. I'm pleased to be here today with a panel of very well-known healthcare private equity investors. Uh, ben Magnano, who's Managing Partner at Fraser Healthcare Partners. Um, Dan Agroskin, Managing Director and Management Committee Member at JLL Partners. And Tony Davis, President and Managing Partner at Lending Capital Partners. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. First of all, we we're all uh, blindsided by this crisis like everyone else. I'm wondering if there's any early learnings that have come out of, you know, the initial stages, including what preparations you've made intentionally or otherwise that have paid off. Uh, John, it's Ben. I'll go ahead and start. I won't claim anything intentional. Uh, as you said appropriately, we're all blindsided here. That being said, Seattle was on the early side in the United States. So I think for better or for worse, we had a two to three week head start on the most the rest of the country. Um, we pretty immediately flipped, you know, just tactically our entire office to remote work from home in the first week of March. We were simultaneously having our kids' schools closed and seeing the city shut down pretty quickly. And so that was a pretty easy tactical decision that we made. Um, our new reality immediately became just starting out with daily calls with our entire investment team and all of our operating resources around the country. What we did first as we were feeling our way through this um, was basically take our entire portfolio through an exhaustive stress test. Um, it took us a week and a half, two weeks to, to execute on this in partnership with the management teams. Part and parcel with that, you know, it was drawing down all available liquidity across the portfolio, going through the line by line expense management work with our CFOs, working capital optimization and the like. And then the other piece we pushed on with our operating resources was standing up a vertical leader or functional area uh, so we could help the companies. And those were things like supply chain, human capital, navigating, you know, potential furloughs and, and risks and things that were to come, somebody to sit over debt capital markets and assist our CFOs there. And then we had a, a vertical on medical and healthcare you know, staying abreast of uh, the disease spread. One of my partners is a medical doctor and academic researcher by training. So, you know, he was on point for that. Um, you know, after we got through sort of that harried first couple of weeks, we slowed down our cadence to Monday, Wednesday, Friday calls. And then we switched everything over to video, uh, as probably many of you have, um, just to keep as much of a human element as we could to our job, especially for the you know junior team and, and those that don't have families and kids crawling all over them all day. Um, being able to look at people and interact both with the portfolio companies and with our investment team uh, was important for us. So that's a quick rundown of our activities. Yeah, this is Dan. Maybe the only thing to add, and it's a little bit of a copycat uh, of, of what Ben said, but certainly 
yeah, when I think about the constituents who are in our ecosystem, it's certainly all the employees of JLL and similar to Ben, we, we shut down the office pretty early on. In fact, some of the younger guys we had to kick out of the office and told them not to come in as a prohibition rather than a, a recommendation. And so we turned it into a virtual model as well. It was relatively straightforward. Um, I wish I'd say, I could say that we had some uh, advanced pre-work of how we're going to work remotely. We didn't. Fortunately, with all the IT improvements and inventions that have gone on last few years, it became pretty seamless, and I think everybody is well organized. Uh, and we're similarly doing Zoom calls across the whole firm um, once a week, including everybody, not just the investment professionals, and then um, twice a week we have just the investment professionals on. And I think the office is operating a pretty good pace and everybody's getting done what they need to get done. Uh, we then kind of focused on the LPs and had pretty good communication around that and make sure we're transparent around everything that we see happening real time and that obviously moves quickly. And I know we'll talk about the LP communication piece. Uh, and, then, and then lastly, on the portfolio side, uh, similar to Ben, but the goal was to uh, troubleshoot and you know, get through crisis management situations that are really severely impacted and ensure there is uh, ample flexibility and runway from a liquidity standpoint. And then other businesses, you have to scenario plan um, if things got worse, but at the current run rate and the things we're seeing, they're not really impacted uh, as of today. But doing that pre-work ahead of time you know, was really important and we're continuing to stay on top of those things. So maybe I'll pause there, uh, but that was kind of our initial reaction. Yeah, so leading off from there, as you looked at scenario planning and liquidity concerns, how did you guys go about uh, addressing these with the portfolio companies? Maybe Tony, I'll turn that over to you. Sure, so early on, what we did was we were at the very front end of drawing down essentially all revolvers across the entire portfolio. Uh, so that was uh, right at the front end when people were starting to do that. And then, like others have talked about these scenario-based planning, we also began that, began that right at the front end and talked about ways to create liquidity running 13, 26 week and end of your cash flows uh, and in every way imaginable from uh, cutting salaries uh, or deferring salaries of senior management um, laying or furloughing people, uh, if appropriate, depending on the severity of the company, is all very much based on the specific company. Looking at uh, any expense within the company that we could cut, delaying payables, trying to accelerate receivables, or offering uh, slight discounts to for people to uh, pay the receivables uh, early, which actually worked. Um, so we've done all of those kinds of things, uh, both on the creating cash from a revolver perspective, that, but then on cost cutting to make sure all of our companies, uh, regardless of how long this goes, uh, are in a liquidity position uh, to come out the other side of it. John, it's been a very similar approach uh, taken to Tony and what his colleagues did. Um, the back end of our liquidity analysis that very much mirrors what uh, uh, Tony talked through, you know, was really doing a double and triple check on the reserves that we have against each one of our portfolio companies. And as we looked at 13, 26 week and end of year 
cases, you know, did we need to revise up or reserve more capital in individual circumstances after going through all of the exercises that we've all talked about in some cases. We've got LP or other GP co-investors and just making sure that we're all joining hands and synced up on the approach that we were going to be taking depending on, you know, which scenario we were uh, signing off on. Got it. Well, a derivative question is how have the um, lenders reacted? Have they been constructive and uh, how, how have those initial discussions gone? The lenders, uh, it varies by the lender. Some lenders are healthier than others. and some of the relationship lenders have remained uh, relationship lenders. Others, I think, have more difficult portfolios and uh, have become somewhat less relationship-oriented than I would have expected. I think generally, if they believe the company has been uh, managed well from the private equity side, so the private equity firm has worked very quickly to cut costs where it can and think through various scenarios and, and liquidity uh, ramps, uh, and is willing to support the company from the fund itself, I think then lenders are generally being fairly amenable. I think if they don't see that, some of the lenders are getting more aggressive than I would have anticipated. And I think it's actually early because, you know, the big um, date that came and went was March 31st when the interest payment for the first quarter was due. I think even the businesses who are most severely impacted as a result of the crisis made those payments for the most part. And so the next big date that I think everybody is looking towards and, and, and the decisions will have to be made and they're not going to be easy, whether or not those payments are made in businesses that are effectively shut down. And I think that's when you will see how the interaction between the private equity firm and the lenders are going to come to be. My sense is that the lenders will be a little bit more flexible in understanding because this is not a typical kind of workout situations for the challenged businesses. But that being said, they all have their own constraints and imperatives, and they also potentially have back leverage that they have to deal with. And so ultimately, yeah, I'm sure the lenders will operate in their best interests, although maybe there's going to be a little bit more flexibility. But I do think that there's going to be some tough situations to come if this crisis continues for the duration, you know, of more than a month or two. Yeah, Tony and Dan's comments, um, I'm sure they experienced similar, but we had plenty of top of the house to top of the house conversations with folks where it started right out of the gate with open for business, let's engage, let's figure out ways to work through this together. And in some instances, tenors changed rather quickly, you know, like within a week. I think it's, they were starting to get a better understanding of what was going on in their own uh, portfolios. So to, to Dan's point, 331 was key. And I think if there was a constructive approach there, then they were willing to say like, you know, let's all figure out where we are at, you know, end of 2Q, end of 3Q. Yeah, that's helpful. I realize, you know, they are one you know, sort of step removed from the actual performance of the companies. You guys are, just getting your arms around how these companies are performing uh, going into the maw of this crisis. Uh, what, what sectors within your portfolio have been more or less impacted, uh, at least to date, uh, that you can see? And, you know, I guess the natural follow-on question is, what types of portfolio companies are going to emerge stronger and why? Well, uh, you know, the irony of this 
crisis is that in some ways businesses that folks on the road are most defensive uh, are the ones that are maybe on the front lines of being hit. So, you know, some examples are obviously anything related to retail healthcare and physician-centric businesses are effectively shut down. Businesses around dental procedures, uh, physical therapy, uh, dermatology, and other physician-partnered uh, businesses, they're probably the hardest and the fastest hit, and you can also argue maybe will be the slowest one to come back because even when kind of life goes back to normal, Dental procedures, by, by way of example, are not going to ramp back to 100% overnight, and there's going to be a long lead time for those businesses to come back to normal levels. And the challenge will be in some ways, and this is what makes kind of the, the cash forecasting really difficult, is you can forecast to when a business reopens, but then operating at suboptimal capacity utilization called 80%, 70%, none of these businesses are really equipped to make money at those levels. And so getting through that ramp-up period will be pretty challenging for some of these businesses. Um, the other area we've seen you know, hit, maybe tangentially related to this, is anything around elective procedures. Um, and those are obviously delayed either because the hospitals don't have the capacity or because of the directive from the regulators or the patients or the doctors unwilling to perform them. So I think that's the other big area that has gotten hit in, from what we've seen. And just adding on to Dan's comments, similar sentiment, the provider businesses are most heavily impacted. You know, in some instances, volumes down 70% plus in certain geographies. As we go through our modeling, the, the interesting part is the flip side of that is from a liquidity standpoint, some of those businesses, at least for us, are in the best position because of the comp programs and the way they're structured, they're productivity-based, and your largest variable expense is provider compensation. So no one's jumping up and down excited <laughs> that we're lowering expenses because we're not paying for production, but it is a nice yin and yang in terms of, you know, stress testing these businesses and thinking about how long they can last with these decreased volumes. Um, one sort of bright spot to just bring up for this question, John, is um, we've got a business called Matrix Medical, which uh, is a network of nurse practitioners that normally services uh, MA plans and helping them, you know, conduct health assessments and then risk adjust their populations. They've had a couple of opportunities flow to them by virtue of this, which we certainly didn't see coming. Uh, one of which was uh, participating in Vice President Pence's um, task force around how to proliferate testing more broadly in the country. And so that was one. And then the second one was a way for some Fortune 50 companies to provide clinical services on site at their operations. And so that's become a, you know, uh, keeping businesses up and running risk mitigation and frankly employee-based PR move for a couple of Fortune 50s that uh, have signed agreements with Matrix here just in the last week or two, which, um, you know, we probably wouldn't have been talking about if not for the pandemic. And are there other fringe benefits associated with um, unique efforts that are being uh, exerted within the companies and, and at the management level? 
uh, are these companies going to come out stronger or is it just purely uh, an effort to get back to the uh, normal level of operation? I guess, you know, <laughs> an optimist in me would say, yes, you know, stress testing the businesses will ultimately make them efficient uh, and drive better delivery of their services. Um, I'm not sure I'm a cup half full kind of guy on, on that respect, um, maybe on the margins, but I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure I would have wished this uh, for our companies to go through because I think the, the stress that they're incurring both, you know, for the people on the ground and the management teams is pretty dramatic. Um, and it will weigh, I think, on the uh, on the just the, the 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 overall strength of the businesses. You know, I think for a while, even after the crisis subsides from 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 the levels that it is today. But I don't know if others, you know, I'm more optimistic on that front. I think I, I generally agree with that. And as a, uh, as a general matter, that's absolutely true. I think it's there's going to be long lasting impacts. We do have a few businesses where. To, to the extent that there's a silver lining, I'm not sure I'd go to the full half, you know, glass half full, but at least the silver lining is some of the businesses are dramatically uh, increasing or ramping their uh, digital uh, delivery of various kinds of healthcare services. So I think that's a positive, but certainly agree that uh, if, uh, if I'd rather they not have had to go through this and been a slower ramp on, uh, on their digital uh, the delivery of services. Great. Given that um, you know the risk profile of the portfolio has is uh, is not what it expected to be, as Dan was saying, uh, given the uh, unusual nature of this crisis and given the the speed at which we've been hit by this crisis, how do you go about communicating with your LPs? So we've taken a, a pretty. Uh, uh, forthright and aggressive approach with our LPs uh, very early relative to how this unfolded. We had a call with our uh, joint advisory boards across all three active funds and laid out a pretty bearish view of the world on how we thought it would impact the, the uh, U.S. economy and then specifically going through the funds. Uh, and we got feedback that that was probably the most negative call that they had had at that point is at the very front end. I think within a week or two, I think they felt that uh, we actually were spot on uh, in terms. And so they pre appreciated how forthright we had been. We followed up with another uh, advisory board call. And then for the first time in our history, we did an all investor call uh, for uh, literally every single investor in the fund. and addressed uh, fund by fund where we thought uh, things were headed and then went and discusses a lot of people have kind of where where the companies were by tier so red yellow or green as many people have done both from a revenue and liquidity perspective so we've tried to be quite open with them which they've appreciated uh, we've also let them know for a fund four uh, it's nearly 60 percent uninvested and as a result we've got a lot of dry powder there and there should be some great opportunities going forward. So while our funds two and three will be negatively impacted from this, the reality is our fund four will probably end up being a better fund uh, because of the buying opportunities. We've tried to also then let them know about capital calls. We're trying very hard not to issue capital calls right now, understanding that people are uh, not in a particularly liquid position. 
and then talked with our advisory boards about what they want us to do. So we've also spent a lot of time talking about how we're defending those companies that are in the red zone. Uh, uh, and the yellow zone is they're fine for now, as others have discussed, but if this goes on a long time, it could be different. So talked about how we're addressing those. But that's been generally communication. We've clearly opted for more frequent and more open communication. Yeah, for us, it was very similar. You know, our approach, which is I'm sure similar to Tony's and Ben's, is just be really transparent with LPs and uh, share the good and the bad um, and over communicate. And that's exactly what we've done. Um, we also put out kind of a detailed memo describing what we're seeing on the ground uh, pretty early on in a fair amount of detail for each company. Uh, and that obviously changes r rather rapidly on the ground. And so we're continuing to stay abreast of, of communicating with them uh, and giving them real-time updates. Um, I do agree that the silver lining here is for uninvested capital, there should be great investment opportunities. and. Um, you know, I think the investors are excited about that, maybe, <laughs> but 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 even more concerned about what's what's on the ground already. But I think over communicating has certainly is, I think is the best approach. Yeah. So how do how do you turn lemons into lemonade in this environment? Are there LPs that are willing to be supportive of uh, doubling down, given the uh, how attractive the valuations are right now? Uh, we haven't seen that yet from our own investors. I think they are trying to understand what the liquidity needs are of their underlying GPs. So we haven't had any yet come to us. We're raising money for a different vehicle right now. And there are people who are still interested in put, putting money in that vehicle. So LPs are not all shut down, but we haven't had any come at us with kind of aggressive requests around doing a special situation fund. John, I'd say the same thing as Tony um, in talking to our peer group and our LPs who we've been in the frequent dialogue with. It feels like we're four to eight weeks out to venture a guess before, you know, people are really wanting to sharpen a pencil and, and think about those things. Our, what I read through from the conversations with the LPs is they really want to understand what marks may look like for 331 and then uh, for 630 to the extent we're willing to hazard a guess and then they're looking to you know pull all their dials and, and figure out where that sets them from an allocation standpoint first before they then start to be you know forward-looking or opportunistic um, around new investment opportunities and in terms of what you guys are doing with your existing funds are you looking for new platform deals right now or are you mostly focusing on add-ons we are not yet looking for new platforms. I think that we've been attending to the portfolio for the last 30 days or so, principally focused there. There are some add-ons that are coming up, but I, I think there's it's going to take some time for sellers to adjust their price expectations uh, for new platforms uh, and or they're going to have to be in a distressed situation where they don't have too much of a choice. So we're not seeing a lot of traditional new deal activity right now. And for us, we're trying, obviously, you have to show up the portfolio and defend the companies they own and make sure that that's progressing in the right direction. On the New Deal front, we, we will try to be opportunistic in the distressed land. Uh, during the 08-09 crisis, we certainly made a number of investments that proved to be quite successful. And so we're going to look at things um, as simple as just buying that in the secondary market to the extent that the yield approach uh, equity-like returns, uh, and, and we haven't seen a lot of 
companies at those levels yet. You know, the companies that are trading north of 20% yield to worse are those that had issues going into the downturn, and this will probably tip them over. And so there you're really taking principal risk. But businesses that have had issues as a result of the crisis have not come down in price yet. But that's certainly going to be something that we're going to look at pretty hard. Uh, and then along the same vein, if we can be uh, an investor who can provide a pipe or some kind of structured equity to a public company to either deliver or give them capital to be aggressive or other liquidity solutions, again, as long as it's priced at equity-like returns, uh, those kind of structured type of investments are ones that we're going to look at hard. And I think it's going to be determined whether or not that's actionable really by how long the downturn uh, continues for and how long the economy stays shut down. Great, and I know on the debt side uh, for your existing portfolio companies, some of the debt may be available at very attractive yields. Is that something you guys actively look at? We do. Uh, we have the ability to, to acquire debt in our own companies. I would say the yields are not really where it would make any sense for us to act on it yet, uh, but certainly if there's a way to capture equity value, um, you know, we would, we, would, we would think about it. And how do you get around the LP complex? Do you do that at the, uh, or where do you actually do that investment? Do you back lever it at, at the GP level, or do you, does it go into the same vehicle that's already in the equity? No, you'd have to do it in the same fund. I think doing it from different funds there, you run into real serious conflicts. And the way we would approach it, we would, you know, talk to the advisory committee and make sure everybody's on board. And as long as there's uh, comfort around you know, buying the debt in our companies, it just could be a very attractive way to enhance equity returns. Um, but you have to do it in conjunction with, with the, the conversation with the, with the advisory board, in, in, my, in my mind. Interesting. As you look at the waterfront of opportunities uh, in, in what we assume will, will exist uh, a month from now, three months from now, four months from now, you know, what do you see as being the most desirable subsectors to invest in? You know, what's going to recover the fastest? What is uh, likely to be um, somewhat predictable in the interim period? Um, have you guys started to do that landscaping effort? We've started to dig in a bit there, John. Um, I, I think maybe the most obvious answer is, you know, those either facility-based or provider-based that are largely electives where, you know, you've had long waiting lists and plenty of demand, uh, probably takes the bravest souls to lean in on something like that, not knowing how this, how long this is going to persist. But uh, some of those areas are, are places where we're spending some time. And then um, somebody mentioned on the call earlier, you know, I think that the advent of and the new day for, you know, technology, um, being pervasive in a lot of the different practice-based businesses that we all look at. I think that is right. It is here to stay. So for us, um, looking broadly at healthcare IT, you know, specific, specifically for us in and around um, tools and services uh, provided to payers, and then also broadly the healthcare payment space, um, you know, those seem like they could be opportunistic uh, as we venture forward. Others, I know this is probably the most interesting topic for people listening to this interview. 
uh, given that you guys have a pretty unique purview over the, the healthcare space and all the sub-segments, which ones to you are, are likely to be the most exciting to invest in? Well, I think it's um, what Ben said a little bit. Um, you know, I put it in a couple of different buckets. One, the ones, the sectors that have been most impacted by this downturn, and is there a way to get in at a maybe a semi-distressed levels or interesting entry points as a way to play the other side of the of the crisis, which invariably most of these businesses are healthy, good business model, and they should come back in time. So one one area of focus is you know those that are most impacted. I would say two. Um, is thinking about areas that maybe have been benefited by the crisis. And so, you know, we've talked a little bit about telehealth and digital delivery of care, um, diagnostics, you know, some of the personal protective equipment areas that really have, have, you know, gotten the upside of the crisis if there's such a thing. And then the last thing is just healthy businesses like healthcare IT, like uh, payment type type businesses that are really good areas to invest in that historically have traded at uh, sky high multiples and obviously valuations have come in. If you look across, you know, the, the different subsectors of healthcare, um, the enterprise value to EBITDA is probably down four to five turns. And I'm not sitting here pretending like the seller's expectations all of a sudden have gotten to those levels, but certainly there should be better buying valuations for really attractive businesses that have traded at sky-high multiples, you know, just, you know, a month ago, and, and taking advantage of maybe people pulling in risk and, and valuations coming down. As you look in your crystal ball, um, and I know it's early, what are your investment committees assuming in terms of how long, what's your base case for a return to a normal environment? I think it really depends on which business we're talking about. There's been a lot of discussion around the, the multi-site healthcare businesses and how long they're going to take to return to normal. And we agree with that. Uh, we were very early in calling for an extended period uh, of a downturn and we continue to believe that so i think that true return to normal will occur not when any government policy changes but when effectively you're comfortable taking your 80 year old parents to a crowded restaurant and that's going to take a long time you need uh either a vaccine which is a very long way off uh, an effective therapeutic that can actually be manufactured at scale, which will take a long time, particularly the manufacturing at scale, you know, and a combination of truly accurate fast testing. And a lot of that fast testing we've seen recently is not particularly accurate. We've got a diagnostics expert, one of the country's experts as one of our operating partners, and the public news you read about the diagnostic tests is somewhat misleading uh, given their actual accuracy uh, and true throughput. So we do think this really does last uh, quite a long time. True normal is probably a year out. There are some businesses that'll start to get back to normal in three to four months, but many ones that are hard hit, it's gonna be, we think a longer haul than people are assuming right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm wrong on all of this. Tony, maybe to add to the glass half empty, I, I almost entirely agree with, with what you've said. Um, 
one of the things we've been doing with our LPs, John, uh, is having a call every three weeks with uh, uh, our partners from the venture side of Fraser Healthcare's business. Uh, Tachi Yamada, who was the head of healthcare for the Gates Foundation and one of our partners on the venture side, who's the MD, PhD um, in public research, would echo a lot of what Tony has just walked through in terms of likely timing and when we get back to normal, um, I think everyone believes that, at least on our side, that there are going to be waves of this, hopefully not as deep and severe as what we're all going through now. But, um, you know, our stress test modeling contemplated, call it five to six months of, quote, non-normal. Um, but I think I would echo exactly what Tony would say. If, if you ask me, when are we going to get back to what we all knew to be normal in January, February of this year, I, I think you're talking the back half of 2021 at the earliest. I, I want to be the optimist on the call, but I almost can't disagree with anything you guys said. I, I think our return to normal is 2021 and probably to the latter half of the year, uh, part of the year. Because the other thing you're dealing with is just and I think Tony, you, you said it well. It, it, it's it's the general psychology across the population. There's a lot of fear. Some of it is fact-based, others is not. But to have the psyche and and, and the approach to life change overnight, it's just not going to happen. And so beyond just all the numbers and all the um, stats that you're seeing on on number of cases and the like, it's a lot more to do with just people's psychology and and and, and willingness and ability to get back to normal life, and that's just going to take a pretty long time. Um, again, I, I hope I'm wrong as well. So related to this, you know, Kane Brothers was working on uh, probably around 20 cell sites going into this crisis in all different stages, and the, the question that every client has for us is, what do buyers need to see in order to pay a fair price? Is it one quarter of normal operation? Is it just visibility on when that, that uh, normal level is likely to occur, even if it's sort of 12 months out, just having some confidence that you get back to that level. How do you guys think about that as far as? Well, uh, I think I'd like you to tell me so I know when we can sell our businesses, but I, I think you've got to be at the point where there's a return to normalcy uh, and you've got to see a couple of quarters uh, at a minimum. So we're thinking because we had a couple of sell sides that we've pulled and our view is you're going to have to see a couple of quarters of a return to uh, pre-COVID levels to be able to get the kind of valuations and at that point who knows what the multiples are we're obviously at the tail end of a 10-year boom with very very high multiples and at least looking back at the 0809 time period it took a few years for multiples to come back just one thing to add on, I completely agree with those comments. And as you think about getting a couple of quarters that look more, quote, normal, we're all going to have this second quarter, whatever it looks like, in our trail. And so, John, as you guys advise folks like us on taking businesses out, you know, it's going to be selling through to a, a, a buyer group that you got to ignore the uh, – you know, the, the rat moving its way through the python, if you buy the metaphor, to get this terrible quarter that we're all about to experience, you know, out of the trailing numbers. No, I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly. It'll just take time. And I think Q2 is going to be very bad, I think worse than kind of the general perception is out there. And as we talked, Q3 uh, 
is, is, is hopefully going to be on the upswing, but you don't just return overnight uh, to kind of pre-COVID levels. It's just, it just very hard for that to happen. And so you're probably talking about not just one quarter of very bad results, but at least several. Um, and that will just take some time to work its way through the system. So I, I, I'm completely aligned with what with, with the other guy said on the call. And so, you know, along those lines, how do you think the healthcare private equity environment is going to change longer term? What's sort of the, or is there a new normal that will follow from this crisis? Yeah, John, for us, the thing that we're really focused on with our businesses right now, a, a little bit like uh, Tony and Dan talked about, is preparing testing capabilities so that we can, you know, safely reopen and certify to the public, our patients and our customers, that they're entering a safe environment. I think that, uh, you know, uh, story or, or analogy around taking your parents to a, a restaurant is, is apt. Um, whatever that new normal is, everyone's going to have that thought in the back of their minds. Um, you know, we're probably never going to see a clinical setting again where there's, you know, busy waiting rooms and any one of us are going to be walked through a clinical operation that's busy and we're passing by other patients in close quarters. So how you, how you feather that into your models is the question. And then the other new normal question that I don't have answers to, but we're trying to think through and doing some analyses around is, is the, you know, payer community, both public and private. Um, given the macroeconomic stress that the country's experiencing, that probably spells darker days for Medicaid funding. And by virtue of that, the reimbursement regime uh, within that, and then, you know, how the commercial payers are going to behave here um, is an interesting one with lots of different variables where they're not seeing a lot of volume from things like car crashes and elective procedures today. Um, but the open enrollment period at later this year is probably going to be informative and, and different. And then what that means for how they choose to, you know, pay rates and the like in 2021 and beyond. These are all the things that we're trying to get our arms around and in, in informing how we do our underwriting. And I do think maybe to just put a, a, a positive note into the conversation, which there hasn't been a lot of, is fundamentally, the reason we're all in the healthcare investing business is, is, is just it's a great end market and all the macro trends that existed before the COVID hit, you know, will still persist in the post-COVID world. And those mega trends are going to continue to, to meet the multi-decade long trends, it's demographics, uh, technical innovation, uh, pharmaceutical innovation, it's all the trends that everybody knows quite well and the efficiency in the delivery of care will only improve. And so to me, the megatrends will continue. There's still a ton of dollars on the sidelines wanting to invest in healthcare businesses. So I think the fundamentals will still be there. It's just to me, how long does it take to get back to an environment that is somewhat normal? And that will take a bit of time. I agree with that. I think uh, on an overall basis, the trends are there, uh, as was just stated. I do wonder on on how it's going to affect the physician practice management or doctor deals, whether or not those will, uh, how quickly multiples will come back in those businesses. Because I think there's already a little bit of understanding that they're difficult businesses to manage. They can go very well, but they require a lot of work. And this only reinforces that. 
Great. Well, look, I realize this is a um, this is not the the perfect time to ask people to do a a panel. So thank you very much for uh, participating. You've been tremendously transparent. It's been incredibly insightful for us and for me as a a banker. So thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me.